Okay, the uh, topic we have this morning will be the final judgment. Uh, it is towards the end of the book that we've been studying together, and uh, fittingly, as we come to the close of our study, we also were studying the last things that God has planned for not only His people, but for the whole earth. So we're going to look at the several passages related to the final judgment. The structure that I want to follow this morning will be, uh, first we want to review some controlling passages, some uh, didactic, very just passages that review the final judgment in detail and really set the stage and set our mindset for when we're, when we're finding details in other passages of Scripture, we can use these controlling texts to say, okay, I understand where all this fits because I've, I've grasped the, the larger whole. Uh, secondly, we want to review uh, a topic that might be particular to believers. So will, the, will believers face the final judgment? It's a question we want to ask, and we want to pick through a lot of the details related to that and see how we should approach the topic of will believers face the final judgment. Um, but really, that's going to be too big. Uh, hopefully, the second part is more in-depth than the first part, but we do have to put our minds around uh, what this thing is, the final judgment, uh, so we can understand rightly the details as Scripture teaches them. Okay, so first controlling text I'd like, I'd like us to review is from Revelation chapter 20. So if you could open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We're, gonna, we're just going to look at five verses from this chapter. Verses 11 through 15. I'll give you a second to find it. I tried to bring an illustration this morning. I want you to notice on the tables in front of me the illustration. You read all those, right? I have not. But it does upset my wife that I have not read all of those because she bought them for me as a gift. <laughs> Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was found written in the book of life, was, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's use this as a controlling text for us this morning. Uh, at the close of the New Testament, as uh, 
the Apostle John is wrapping up his vision, what was revealed to him from Jesus himself regarding the end times. Uh, John paints a picture for us of a stack of books and then a single book. In the stack of books seems to be written everything the dead have done. Everything they have done. There are some things in here good. There are some things in here evil. But everything, every single human being has ever done is recorded in these books. And this is just an illustration. There will be millions upon millions of books. And in them recorded everything that any human being has ever done. But there is another book. And this book seems to supersede everything that goes on in these books. This book is called the Book of Life. And if anyone's name, it doesn't record that there was any of their works or anything that they had done, but simply their name. If their name was written in this Book of Life, then what these books record is null and void. We see... As, as a controlling text, that uh, this is a vision, so there is a great white throne. There is a pure throne, uh, and on which sits one who is too glorious to behold, even sky and uh, earth and sky flee away from his presence. This is apocalyptic language, but it is illustrative of who we are going to face here. You see, we... We recognize the Jesus of the Gospels because he was incarnate as one of us. He had flesh and bones, and he still has flesh and bones. But as the three saw him in his transfigured glory, so now much more on his glorious throne, there is a difference to the one who sits on it. This is the Lord Jesus in all of his glory. And he is sitting on a throne. The throne is the place where he rules, and specifically here, the place where he will judge. And he judges all impartially. He judges all rightly. He judges all the dead, great and small. There is no human being who escapes this judgment. We're all there. We are told in this passage what happens to those whose overriding judgment comes from the books what is recorded by what they have done the judgment for them is that they are cast into the lake of fire we will talk about the eternal state uh, i think in two weeks the, the eternal state of damnation in two weeks is our topic this is where that decision is made Let's go to Matthew chapter 25, another controlling text. In Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, we read, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Notice the similar language. The Son of Man is coming in his glory, and he's going to sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, 
And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want you to see the parallels between Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne and here in Jesus' discourse in Matthew 25. In both passages, we see the Lord Jesus himself acting as the judge. In both passages, we see the Lord Jesus sitting on a glorious throne. In both passages, we see all of mankind gathered before him. Every single person who has ever lived gathered. Here in Matthew 25, it's expressed as all the nations. In, uh, in Revelation 20, it was expressed as all the dead. But this is every single human being will be before this throne. In this passage, we are told that Jesus is going to separate people one from another. And in this separation, we learn that some of them minister to Jesus in his need and others of them did not minister to Jesus in his need. We see that the issue then of this final judgment is the eternal state of every single human being. What is being decided here is whether or not a person will enter into the rest of the Father or they will be cast into the lake of fire. These are the issues that Jesus is dealing with in this passage. So if these two passages are referring to the same event at the end of time when the Son of Man appears in His glory and sits on His throne and judges the living and the dead... All human beings from all of time, the issue at stake at this final judgment will be whether those people will enter into eternal rest with the Father or eternal punishment away from the Father. Those are the issues at stake in this judgment. Okay? Another controlling passage, if you will, 2 Peter chapter 2.
I'd like to tackle uh, both Second Peter chapter two uh, portions of both chapter two and chapter three, and I'd like to tackle them in three parts. So we'll read verses chapter two verses one through three first. We'll make some comments there. Chapter two verses four through ten make some comments, and then we'll read the longer passage in chapter three verses one through thirteen. In chapter in Second Peter chapter two verses one through three, Peter writes. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow in their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter is tackling here a normal human response to good and evil in the world. The normal human response that is, in my view, by virtue of the image of God, that exists in every single human being and by the influence of common grace upon all of mankind, the issue that Peter is dealing with here is the issue of justice. By nature, human beings have a longing for justice. We see a wrong and we think that wrong ought to be punished. We see someone doing well, and we think that that person doing well ought to be rewarded. There are evil actions, and there are good actions, and evil actions are deserving of judgment, and good actions are deserving of reward. Where does this innate idea come from in human beings, in virtually all human beings? This moral idea permeates all of human history. We all, every society has set up their moral code and their law books and they have said, these things are evil, they deserve to be punished, these things are good, they deserve to be rewarded. Where does this come from if not from the image of God as we were created at the beginning? Yes, marred, but by common grace, it continues to permeate society. So don't think that the issue at stake in the judgment are the absolute worst people ever versus the absolute best people ever. That's not the issue of the final judgment. The issue of the final judgment is that all human beings living under this moral world that God has created, we have all committed evil acts and we've all done good things and the issue becomes what is to be done to those who have done the evil things. And what is to be done to those who do good things? That's the issue of justice that rises up in us. And there are those in the early church in Peter's time who were doing the evil things. They were leading the Christians astray. They were teaching false doctrine. And by teaching this false doctrine, they were even leading the people that Peter is writing to here into what he calls sensuality, into depraved, sinful behaviors that deserve condemnation. 
And so there is this issue of good and evil and these who are doing evil, blaspheming and teaching false doctrine and leading Christians to commit sensual, sinful acts, what is to be done with them? Or that the people that, said, that Peter is writing to in his second letter here, they might say, not so much what is to be done with them, because that's like the innate human understanding. I know what's to be done with them, but the question is, how long do we have to wait for that? And that really is the issue that Peter is dealing with in his second letter here. How long do we have to wait for the evil ones to get uh, the rightful judgment that comes upon them? Okay, Because in verse 3 he ends with, uh, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. It's... Peter is instructing his listeners here, don't think that God has given up on justice. God has not given up on justice. He is allowing a, a period of time where this sort of evil behavior is tolerated for a purpose. We'll see that in chapter 2. For a purpose, but their destruction is coming. Their, their judgment is not asleep. He hasn't forgotten. Okay? Let's, let's move on in Peter's argument, verses 4 through 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Okay, so Peter goes on with his argument here. He said that Christians in any time you know, since the ascension of Christ, and we're living in this time between the two comings of Christ, his first coming to pay for sin and his second coming to bring an end to all things. Right? We're living between this time and sometimes it seems like evil is prevailing and sometimes it seems like those who practice wickedness are, are set over us as rulers and, and all, of, all of this wickedness seems to go unjudged and they even seem to prosper in their wickedness. They seem to get more riches and more fame and more power. And how can we explain these things? And Peter says, you have forgotten your history. You have forgotten that there was a rebellion among the angels. And when, and when the angels rebelled, God chained those rebellious angels in the pit. Now... I'll let Larry deal with that next week during the millennium. <laughs> God knows how to judge rebellious angels. Not only that, but he knows how to judge the world through water. He, in fact, has already done this. And the wickedness of man was so great upon the earth that the Lord said, I am grieved that I have created man. 
And he determines to send a flood. And in this flood, he kills every single human being on the face of the planet, except for eight. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others of his family. God knows how to bring an end to the wickedness of man. Or consider Sodom and Gomorrah. Consider how wicked and how Lot was tormented in his soul because of the lawless deeds of these men of Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of their lawless deeds, they were rightly judged by God. God knows how to judge the wicked. He has done it before. Don't forget your history. He can and will do it again. That's the point of verses 4 through 10. So let's jump to, well, when is this going to happen, Lord? When, do, when is, if he remembers, if he knows how to judge the wicked, when does that happen? Uh, let's go to chapter 3 and just start reading in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the wickedness of this life is real. There are wicked people who reject the law of God, who are doing everything in their power to live contrary to the revealed will of God, the moral will of God. And Christians rightly say, how long until it's judged, until we see God's vindication how long, in other words, until Christ sits on the throne and opens these books and reveals what really these people have done? But Peter teaches us it's not only Christians who are waiting. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. It's not only Christians who are waiting, but even these unrighteous then pick up on the waiting part and they begin to scoff. And they begin to say, how long will it be until this Messiah of yours comes back? Everything has gone on 
from, from the fathers until now, largely the same. Why do I behave like this? Because this is the way the world works. The world works by the vicious and the uh, and those who are self-motivated and those who are self-indulged. These people get ahead. I am just living practically. I don't know how long you expect to wait for this Savior of yours to arrive. And Peter gives us the Holy Spirit-inspired answer as to why there is a delay. Why do Christians have to wait for the judgment? And why then do these wicked people get to scoff at God and say, judgment's probably not coming. It didn't come in the time of my fathers and it's probably not going to come in my lifetime. So it's probably just a hoax. Why does wickedness keep abounding? The Lord does not count slowness as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There, there, there would be a lot to unpack there. Suffice it to say, the Lord is allowing this period of time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming for this explicit purpose to fill heaven with guilty sinners who are covered by Christ's blood. How long do we have to wait? I, I taught two weeks ago that uh, on the second coming and how it ought to be the utmost desire of our hearts. But I have three unconverted children. And so my heart is torn because I want to see the Lord of glory appear in the clouds and, and bring all of this that He has promised to pass. But I have loved ones and you have loved ones that so long as this time persists, there is an opportunity for them to repent and believe. There is an opportunity for them to become one of the people of God and not face the judgment that is coming them. Peter wants us to know the timing of this judgment is the second coming of Christ. It is The scoffers are the one who brought it up. When is the promise of His appearing? When, it, when, is, he, when is He going to come again? But, but this is the time frame of what Peter is talking about. The judgment will come when Christ returns again. And He is not slow, but He is coming. And the issues are the same as we saw in Matthew 25 and in Revelation 20. It is the eternal state of those whom Jesus is coming to judge. The Lord knows how to be just. He knows how to be just. Now, a particular issue related to believers and this final judgment. Okay? Specifically, will believers face the final judgment? I think we've seen by these controlling texts that all human beings who have ever lived, both great and small, the living and the dead, all nations, everyone will stand before the great white throne judgment. Now, what kind of... Uh, how do we interpret what's going to happen to us there? Now, I, I'm assuming that if you're here for a Sunday school class, you know, before church even starts, uh, you probably have a, a, a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, having repented of your sins. And so in, in this section, I'm, I'm, I'm addressing believers specifically. If you have not repented of your sins, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and have the assurance of rescue on the final day, then 
as we approach this middle section here, uh, you continue to meditate on what's contained in these books regarding your life and your deeds and what will be revealed on the last day. Okay? But if the, if the teaching is consistent, we might say, well, if everyone is at the great white throne and if everyone's deeds are written in these books, then will one day a book be opened up that says Jason Houston? And will, will it be read from there everything that Jason Houston has ever done? And that creates some mental tension for us. That, that, let, let's just work through it together. Uh, specifically, let's get into the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's get to the book of 1 Corinthians where uh, Paul really dives into this topic. Uh, we'll, we'll look at various verses as we walk through the first half of this book and then we'll go to 2 Corinthians to get a better understanding of it. Okay? The, the question before us is, will believers face the final judgment? Right? There, there are these two controlling, one book, set of books, right? Will believers be there? Okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, Paul tells the Corinthians, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay? Paul, this is getting a little bit complicated here because, uh, because in the controlling text, in all of the controlling text, it seems that the issues of the final judgment are this, either eternal bliss for those whose names are found in the Lamb's Book of Life, or as Matthew 25 would say, those who minister to Jesus' needs, or you're, uh, you're going to be eternally condemned because of what is written about you in the books. If those are the issues of the final judgment, then what in the world is Paul talking about here when he talks, he's specifically talking to Christians about their works and some of them being burned up? And some of us, I won't say some of you, I will say some of us will escape by the skin of our teeth. Right? We will be saved as, as only through fire. As if to say... All of the false works that we, uh, I'm sorry, how, how should I say this? All of the works that we did as a Christian, those that were base and, and worthy of judgment and, uh, and condemnable, those will be burned up by fire. And, but you happen to be a Christian, so maybe most of what you've accomplished in life is completely condemnable, so... Uh, you, will, you will enter into heaven, but you're going to be like at the back of the line. We're, we're talking the back of the line. Is that, is that what Paul is teaching here? Well, let, let's keep going in the book to see what else he says. Chapter 4, verse 5. 
He's continuing to talk about this idea of judgment. this, This theme of judgment runs throughout the entire first half of this book. In verse 5 he says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Okay, so it seems that Paul now says in chapter 4 verse 5 here that all of the secret things of your heart are going to be revealed. Right? Because they're all written in the books. Everything you ever thought, everything you've ever done, every wicked or lustful or prideful thought in your, in your head and in your actions has been recorded. Right? It's Paul saying here that all of those things will be brought to light, things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Some Christians worry about the final judgment. They worry, yeah, okay, my name's in here, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everything that's written about me here isn't going to be brought to light and disclosed. And this worries some Christians. Maybe it should. Let's just, let's just let Paul speak for himself. Okay? Uh, well, actually, at the end of verse 5 here, uh, then each one will receive his commendation from God. That word there is not condemnation. Right? If you're reading too fast, you might say each one will receive his condem- condemnation from God, which is uh, wrathful, eternal judgment. Rather, this word here says commendation or praise. Each one will receive his well done, good and faithful servant, according to verse 5. Okay, so, well, that, that was weird. So everything's going to be disclosed, and I know there's things out there that I don't want disclosed, and I'm going to get a pat on the back saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know how that works. Let's just keep going. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. Um, I like to start at the beginning of a sentence, so in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, uh, in in a lot of these passages that we've read so far, that phrase, the day of the Lord, has been a theme running through them. The day of the Lord is is a theological concept in the New Testament especially, to refer to the last day, the day of Christ's coming and the day of final judgment. Uh, that's the day of the Lord. And, and here Paul picks up on that idea of the day of the Lord. But if we were to read this entire, uh, le- leading up to what, ha- what he's saying in verse 5 here, we would learn that there is a man in the Corinthian church who is committing gross sin. Very perverse sin. And Paul says that the church, we've talked about church discipline, the church is to exercise judgment upon this man for what purpose? Um, For the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is saying Christians, the controlling narrative has already told us all people will stand before the great white throne judgment and There are these books, and in these books contain everything we've ever said or done. But for the Christian, according to Paul, the warning of this day of judgment is to save the spirit of the one whose deeds 
recording these books would bring shame and dishonor upon himself and on Christ. Let's keep going in, in, in verse six now. I'm sorry, in chapter six, chapter six, verses one through three. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous, unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Let's just stop there. There's so much we could say about the book of 1 Corinthians. And taking a lot of these verses in isolation and just picking them out of their context and reading them might lead some Christians to not look forward to that final day, but rather to shrink back in fear and to realize that even in my Christian life, there is plenty that I need to be ashamed of. And if everything is going to be exposed, I don't even know that I want to stand there. Right? It, it leads to fear. But in the greater context of 1 Corinthians, we see the apostle is writing to a church that is filled with all kinds of sin. They are not a faithful church. They are a church. They are blood-bought children of God. But they are allowing a lot of false teaching and a lot of sinful behaviors to be in their midst. What is Paul doing with these judgment texts then? Why is Paul calling forth the, the doctrine of the final judgment and bringing it to bear on the Corinthians here? Paul often does something similar to this. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul threatens Christians in multiple places with apostasy. Apostasy is the idea that a Christian can fall from grace. The idea that uh, you can be saved, but then through your own sinful and rebellious heart, you fall away from God. You are no longer saved. How does Paul reconcile that with so many of his teachings about Christians are safe in the Lord, Christians uh, will persevere to the end? How, how do we reconcile this? The answer that has often been given is that the warnings themselves are the means by which God preserves his people. The word of God, the powerful double-edged sword of the word of God when it warns you against falling away from the Lord Jesus Christ, that word is able, it's powerful to, by its effectual work, rescue you from actually falling away. So why wouldn't we think when Paul draws out this language of the final judgment and 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 applies it to the believers in 1 Corinthians, that he is not in a similar way drawing upon language, drawing upon a theological concept in order to rescue the Corinthians. Not to cause them to live in fear of the final day. Not to cause them to, uh, to become hypocritical, self-righteous, uh, man-centered, I, I, I will obey all the commandments. Right? We, we see how that worked out for the Pharisees. Right, Not to cause them to become all of these self-righteous individuals, but rather so that in their, unrighteous, in their continued unrighteousness in their life, 
with the help of the church, they will actually be preserved to the last day for their salvation. Um, let's go to Romans. I'm, I'm going to skip 2 Corinthians 5. Make a, make a note if you want to. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6, 6-10. through 10, Paul keeps talking about the, uh, to the Corinthian church there. But I'd like to go to Romans chapter 14 first. We'll go to the end of the book, in, near the end of the book, in chapter 14, and then we'll jump back to the beginning of the book in chapter 2. Okay? Uh, maybe you might say, well, is that really the only place that Paul talks about this whole uh, bringing the, the language of final judgment to bear on believers that might bring us to, to, to regard the final judgment in this way? Well, uh, maybe Romans chapter 14, verses 10, and 11, 10 through 12, Maybe this is similar language. He tells the Romans, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, verse 12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Is this not the, is this not the same language? The same language of all of the secrets of my heart being revealed as, as it's uh, fleshed out in 1 Corinthians, but now I have to give an account of all these things. I have to give an account of myself to God. Is this what Paul means here? We, we have to go a little bit quickly. So go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul is speaking to what I was describing as the self-righteous, hypocritical Christian pretenders. In, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul addresses them specifically. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." Consistently, taking all of Paul's teaching consistently and, and walking through it, I think we will see, yes, he, he calls upon the language of the final judgment to rescue and to keep God's people to the end. But when he is specifically talking about judgment, he is talking to those who are unbelievers. Uh, he, here he calls them unrepentant, Hard and impenitent. They require repentance. They are under the wrath of God. All of these designations in Romans 2 would lead us to believe that the, the references in Romans to uh, this final judgment, they, they have to be controlled under the narrative of the unrighteous, those who are unbelieving in Christ, and what will happen to them. It's, it's a matter of hypocrisy that Paul is calling forth here and condemning. Instead of approaching the final judgment and trying to weave these passages and, and then 
And then getting a posture of fear and not wanting to face the final judgment and a, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, just this dread of facing Jesus on the last day. Instead, let's reground ourselves and stop forgetting the gospel. Listen, I know there are those who use these verses as weapons, as weapons to condemn believers because, yes, we have remaining sin, and don't, don't let these weapons be, don't let these verses be used as weapons. Understand them correctly. Reground yourself and stop disbelieving the gospel. We're already in Romans, so just turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You know this one well. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's just, we don't have a ton of time. We, we could go through uh, verses uh, 1 through 11 here, and we would see that the promise of the gospel is no condemnation. Not some condemnation, not a little bit of fear, not, yeah, well, let's, let's get you to heaven, but let's make sure that, every, that the entire universe knows just how uh, wicked you were, right? That, that's not the picture that Paul is painting in, uh, in Romans 8 here. He's saying there's no condemnation, and the law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death, okay? So the, the gospel needs to permeate what we believe here, or go to Hebrews chapter 8. We'll, we'll only read verse 12 for the sake of time. Uh, the author of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah has predicted a new covenant. This new covenant will be one in which uh, all of those who are in the covenant are safe. They are safe, secure. There is no falling away from them, for them. And in verse 12, he, can, he finishes his quote from Jeremiah and he says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. For goodness sakes, when we think about the final judgment and this, it's an important question. Will, the, will believers be there? Yes, believers will be there. But why have you stopped believing the gospel? Why are you standing in fear when God has over and over and over again said what He has already done with your sin in the death of Christ? It will be remembered no more. Or in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, when God plunges our sins into the depths of the sea. Or, for the sake of time, in Colossians chapter 2. So go back to Colossians chapter 2 to see. Just I'm, We're just reminding ourselves. We've been through an entire year of gospel-saturated, Jesus-glorifying, what He has done for sinners study. The, the glorious and just and merciful and kind God and His work in Christ to save us. And now at the end, we're going to forget the benefits of Christ. In First Corinthians, I'm sorry, in Colossians chapter two, verses thirteen and fourteen. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside. What has God done to your sins? Nailing it to the cross. Plunged into the deepest sea. Fine. As far as the east is from the west. Fine. God put his sins behind, put your sins behind his back. Fine. What is the most glorious expression of what God has done to your sins? He has nailed them to the cross. So believer, don't shrink away from the final judgment. How could we reframe all of these controlling texts and all of these details and and make them into a, a system where a believer can stand with confidence on the final day, not shrinking back, but knowing Him who has saved us from our sins and, and having a great expectation of what might follow there. Let's use Matthew 25 as an example. We've already read it. You don't need to go there. I'm just going to tell you a story. All rise, the honorable Jesus Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords, God with us, Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world is presiding. And Jesus enters the courtroom. And he sits upon his throne. All right? Let's have it. Dave, come forward. We have a book. In it is recorded all you have ever done. Angel... Please begin the record. Hold on, Lord, Lord. I'm reviewing the book of life. And it appears that Dave's name appears in the book of life. Interesting. It's got to be right set up. Interesting. It seems there's a lot of gaps in here. It seems that you know, this was a record, but it seems like... You know, I mean, there's a lot in here, don't get me wrong. But there's some serious gaps in here as well. I wonder what happened to that book. I wonder what happened to those passages. Jesus will say, well, read some of those. Read some of those passages to me from Jason's book, from Gene's book, from all of our books. Read some of those passages to me. But it says here, Lord Jesus, that... You were thirsty, and Thomas gave you something to drink. And you say, uh, whoa, there must be some mistake. There must be some, I, I, I don't remember doing that, Lord. Uh, this is Matthew 25. I, I, I don't recall that. When, when did that happen, Lord? Okay. There's another book, right? Another book, another believer standing there. Read a passage from their book. Well, it says, Lord Jesus, that you were naked and Jim clothed you. And Jim says, I don't remember doing that. And Jesus says, I do. Well done, good and faithful one. And another book is opened. I don't think, I don't think we get the emotional appeal of the water and clothes and prison and stranger language. 
So let's make it an, an emotional appeal to you. Another book is opened. And the angel or the court stenographer, right, is reading from it. And he says, well, Lord Jesus, it says here that you were a weird kid who moved to a new city. And it appears here that Martha befriended you and took you in and was kind to you in high school. Martha says, I don't remember doing that. And Jesus says, I do. Well done. Or maybe another book is picked up. And in this book, it says, it says, Jesus, it says here that you were a lost child. You got separated from your mother one day and, and Carla found you and took care of you and contacted the right authorities and got you back with your mother. Carla says, I don't remember doing that to you, Lord. And Jesus says, I do. Or maybe another book is opened and it says, Jesus, it says here that you were a severely depressed pastor in Western, in Western Kentucky. And your wife ministered to you well and loved you through it. And you say, I don't remember doing that to you, Jesus. And he says, I do. I'm using a bit of holy imagination. I don't know what's going to happen to the books of your life. I do know this. Your sin is forgotten. It's at the bottom of the sea. It is nailed to the cross. You will stand before the great white throne of God. You will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if those books are open, I don't know, maybe the prevailing narrative is at the beginning of the opening of the book on your life, the angel controlling the book of life says, your name is here. And Jesus says, well, that settles it. Welcome to paradise. But if that's not it, if that book is opened, and if it is read from there, only those things that Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful one, will be found there. At least that's my conviction. These are end times matters. There is a lot of debate. There's been a lot said about these things. And I don't know that we can expect to, uh, to get it all in this life. But taking a survey, that's where I am. Dave. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Summarizes everything you said. It says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You're dismissed. <coughs>